So today being uh, 16th of January, Ajahn Chah Memorial Day, I'll do a reading uh, about Ajahn Chah. And um, I'm going to read from uh, Stillness Flowing, the biography, the life and teachings of Ajahn Chah compiled by Ajahn Jayasaro. So um, some of the reading will be Ajahn Jayasaro's uh, narrative and some will be quotes uh, from Ajahn Chah's teachings combination. And also, um, I was uh, asking Lung Pa his opinion about uh, what readings might be appropriate for a day like this, and he thought maybe some of the, uh, teach, uh, the, the readings from this book related to the actual practice and teachings. Uh, so I have a selection of those, and also have invited Lung Pa to just interject comments anywhere along the line, and uh, keep some time available afterwards for some reflection since he's our main living connection to uh, someone who spent time with uh, Ajahn Chah, much, much time with Ajahn Chah, actually, uh, it, um, particularly uh, the latter years of his life. So, so this is uh, from the section uh, called A Well-Rounded Training. It uh, starts on page 450 for people who might want to take a look at it. One of the foundations of Buddhist practice is the conviction that purposeful effort has meaning. The Buddha rejected the beliefs that human life is determined by a divine will or fate or randomness. He proclaimed that human beings created their own life and environment by the quality of their actions of body, speech, and mind. Lung Pa's teachings expressed this right view again and again. Monks were to take responsibility for their lives through their own consistent efforts. They all had the potential for liberation within them. The question was whether they had the determination and the patient endurance to realize that potential. Don't just sit, this is Ajahn Chah, don't just sit there waiting for Nibbana to come to you. Have you ever seen anyone successful in that way? Wherever you see you're in the wrong, then quickly remedy it. If you've done something incorrectly, then do it again properly. Reflect on experience. There was no alternative to hard work. Some people become monks thinking that they'll be able to take it easy and enjoy life. But if you've never learned to read, you can't just pick up a book and start to read it. Some people come here to become monks in order to find happiness. But what does happiness arise from? What is its cause? Hardship must come first. Don't you have to work before you eat, have the money to buy food, to farm the land before you get rice to eat? Hardship precedes happiness. One phrase in particular monks heard again and again over the years. Eating little, sleeping little, talking little. These are the actions of the practitioner. Eating a lot, sleeping a lot, talking a lot. These are the actions of the fool. Okay, the next section is titled Patipada. Monks often take on special observances in order to get out of a rut or in the hope of accelerating their practice. At the very least, by doing so, they exercise powers of diligence, vigor, and renunciation all of which are important qualities for monks to cultivate. However, Lung Pao would remind those of his disciples prone to putting their faith in radical but unsustainable asceticism 
to look closely at the intention behind their undertakings. A short period of heroic effort, followed by a longer lazy period of recuperation, was not, he insisted, a wise or effective strategy for dealing with defilement. Craving for results too easily infected a mind set up in this way. For him, the key to, sec to success was patipada, steady, consistent, continuous practice. The tortoise rather than the hare. Don't pay any attention to whether you're feeling diligent or lazy. Normally, people do things when they feel diligent and stop when they feel lazy. But as monks, that's not how we conduct ourselves. Whether we feel lazy or diligent, we practice. We have no interest other than cutting things off, in abandoning them, in training ourselves. We are consistent day and night, this year and next, at all hours, indifferent to feelings of laziness or diligence, hot or cold. We just keep doing it. This is called patipada. Sometimes monks get really gung-ho and sustain it for six or seven days. But when they see they're not getting anywhere, they give up. And then they really lose it for a while, chatting and socializing in a heedless way, until they come to their senses and put in another couple of days of hard effort. Then they give up again until the next time they feel inspired, and that becomes the pattern. It's like people who throw themselves into their work like there's no tomorrow, digging fields, clearing trees, clearing hillsides, and then when it's time to take a break, throw their tools down and walk off without putting them away. By the following morning, the tools are completely caked with mud. Then they get enthusiastic for the work again, and in the evening throw their tools down once more. This is not the way to prepare fields for cultivation, and it's the same for our practice. If you don't think patipada is important, you'll have no success. Patipada is absolutely vital. Making fire was another of Lung Pao's favorite analogies for this principle one that allowed him to perform a favorite short pantomime. As he spoke, and with a big smile on his face, he would mime the fool who rubs two sticks together until he becomes tired or bored, puts them down for a while before picking them up once more, expecting to carry on from where he'd left off. Finally, he gives up altogether and compounds his error by insisting that he knows from experience that it's not possible to get fire from wood. There is fire there, Lung Pao said, but you're only going to produce it if you keep rubbing the sticks without interruption until the critical temperature has been reached. In the same way, practice can only bear fruit when it is developed in a similarly steady manner. Short bursts of effort, no matter how intense, cannot create the necessary momentum. A fisherman casts his net and catches a huge fish. He becomes afraid that the fish is going to jump out of the net and get away. He becomes so anxious, he grabs at the fish wildly, struggles to get a grip on it. Suddenly, just as he feared, the fish is out of the net. But it escapes because his own efforts to grasp hold of it are too violent. There's an old saying, gently, gently does it, but not too gently. That's our practice. Keep feeling things out, feeling them out. Don't give up. You have to look at the mind, understand what it's all about. Try to keep doing the practice, making it consistent. If you're feeling lazy, do the practice. If you're not feeling lazy, do the practice. 
That's the kind of continuity that's needed. He often repeated that the craving to get something or become something would always sabotage even the most determined effort. The Buddha taught that putting forth effort is for abandonment, for letting go, for withdrawing from attachment. There should be no desire for becoming and birth, to get or to be anything at all. This effort was to be constantly monitored and tweaked, the goal being a balanced level called Pwadi, just right. Putting forth effort that moment by moment was maintained at the optimum intensity for achieving one's purpose. Lung Pao defined as right practice. Putting forth effort is not restricted to a particular posture. You can do it while standing, walking, sitting, and lying down. You can realize Dhamma while sweeping leaves or merely looking at a sunbeam. It is essential that mindfulness be constantly primed. Why? Because when you are intent on discernment of the truth, there are opportunities to realize the Dhamma at all times and in all places. This section is called Knowing Now. Lung Pao often said that the present moment encompasses everything. It includes past and future because it is the result of the former and the cause of the latter. For this reason, developing the ability to dwell with clarity in the present moment is perhaps the most fundamental of all meditation skills. However, Lung Pao said that the value of it did not just lie in, their lucid, in the lucid calm that resulted from letting go of memory and imagination. It was in the present moment that wisdom could also be cultivated. In Dhamma practice, all you have to do is keep looking at the present moment. Look at the instability, the impermanence, and Buddha knowing will arise and grow. Keep seeing the truth of all things, that they are impermanent. Pleasure and pain arise, and they're impermanent. It's unsure how long they'll last. If our mind sees the uncertain duration of things, the problem of attachment will gradually diminish. The past was gone, the future had not yet arrived. Suffering, its cause, its cessation, and the path toward, towards its end all lie in the present moment. The practice of staying in the present is mental cultivation. To put it simply, we must be mindful, have a constant awareness and recollection, knowing what is occurring right now, what we're thinking, what we're doing, what's going on with us. We must look at our mind, constantly mindful of our mood, our thoughts, whether we're experiencing pleasant or unpleasant feelings, whether we are in the right or in the wrong. Reflecting, investigating in this way, the wisdom faculty has already manifested. The eyes see a form, the ears hear a sound, the nose smell an odor, the tongue experiences a flavor, the body a touch. Whatever is felt is known. Whether we think something is good or bad, we like it or dislike it, it's all impermanent, unsatisfactory, and not self. The Buddha taught us to put these things down, not to grasp onto them. This is called solving problems. In the last five or six years of his teaching career, most of Lung Pao's Dhamma talks were recorded on audio cassette. In this collection of talks, now stored digitally, Lung Pa deals with a wide variety of themes, among which one frequently repeated teaching stands out, that of mané, 
The phrase, maine, translates most readily as unsure, uncertain, changeful, or indefinite. And is an everyday term that all of Lung Pao's audience would have immediately understood. And then uh, Ajahn Jayasar has a footnote here. The Pali word closest to the idea of maine is viparinama, usually rendered in English as subject to change. A farmer, for example, asked in the planting season whether he expected to get a good harvest that year would, would most probably reply, maine, if we get enough rain, it should be all right. The phrase maine here is a simple recognition that things are affected by many variable conditions and are thus never completely predictable. Lung Pa taught his disciples to practice the perception of maine as a means of cultivating the wisdom faculty by constantly reminding themselves that both internal and external phenomena were maine. They developed anicca sanya, the perception of impermanence, and with practice, the association, the associated perception of dukkha, the inherently flawed, ultimately unsatisfactory nature of experience and anatta, the conditioned, selfless nature of experience. These perceptions of the three, three characteristics of existence created a pathway for vipassana, the deep, worldless insight that uproots defilements and leads to the end of suffering. The practice of maine achieves its power from directly confronting the ingrained tendency of unawakened beings to invest experience with the appearance of solidity. This sense that the things within and without us are real and substantial is founded upon unexamined assumptions. The perception of changefulness became the tool Lung Pao most often recommended to challenge these assumptions. Lung Pao chose to use the phrase maine in preference to the more traditional anichang or impermanent, to bring a fresh slant on wisdom development. For his disciples, Maineya was a familiar, approachable idea, deeply embedded in the culture. It demystified Dhamma practice and made it immediately practical. The specific emphasis of the Maineya practice may be examined by comparing it to the comparable phrase, this too will pass. Whereas this too will pass reminds us of a future beyond the present experience and so puts it into perspective, Maineya points out points to the nature of the present phenomena itself. In daily life, Lung Pao taught that the Maineya reflection was particularly effective in dealing with attachment to ideas and views. In this context, the word might be better translated as maybe not. Whenever the mind was about to draw a conclusion or jump to one, when it was about to make a judgment about something, he taught the meditator to recall, maybe not. Maybe that's not how it is. Maybe that's not how it happened. Maybe that's not what he or she is really like. Whenever the sense of certainty arose, meditators were to temper it with the gentle, maybe not. Even if they were convinced, they were still to reserve a small space in their mind for the possibility of being wrong. Yes, but maybe, just maybe, not. In this way, the mind was to become more careful and nuanced in its attitudes. Lung Pao gave this practice the greatest importance. Maneya is the Buddha himself, he would say. It is the Dhamma. 
He taught that the recollection of Maineya, both as a means of re-educating a person's attitude to their life and also as a specific technique in meditation. As hindrances arose in the course of a sitting, he would encourage the meditator to recognize the hindrance as mine, or changeful, before returning to the breath. As the mind became more subtle, this accumulated perception of mine, that whatever arises, whatever arises does not endure, is an exercise of the wisdom faculty that ensures that the mind does not fall into the trap of attaching to joy or to stillness and is primed to develop vipassana. When you see impermanence clearly, you become a true monk. Seeing the impermanence, the instability of form, feelings, perceptions, mental formations, and consciousness, the mind does not attach to the five aggregates. It doesn't matter what it is. Even if something happens that upsets you so much that tears are forming in your eyes, remind yourself, this is my name. Always bear this in mind with your sati, with your alertness. Whether you feel satisfied, dissatisfied, think this is good, this is bad, see it all as mine, and you can release the attachment. When you see things as ultimately without value, the letting go occurs automatically. Don't forget this word. Don't let it drop. The Buddha taught us not to grasp to the good or the bad. Whatever arises, pool your resources in this word. It is the source of wisdom and the object of vipassana. Make it your constant focus of attention. It will take you beyond doubt. Maine is a tool to uproot attachment to experience. It will enable you to see the Dhamma clearly. One of the means by which Lung Pa sought to inculcate this principle in his disciples' minds was by maintaining an element of unpredictability in their daily lives. Changes would be in introduced to the monastic schedule without prior warning and with no indication of how long they would last. A monk preparing for the annual rains retreat at Wat Papong might be told a day or two before it began that he would be doing the retreat elsewhere, that he should gather his things together, clean up his kuti, and be ready to leave within the hour for a monastery hundreds of kilometers away. It was a style that kept monks on their toes, and it enabled Lung Pa to create a singular atmosphere in his monastery, one in which the calming effects of simplicity and repetition were enlivened by a sense that nothing could be taken for granted. Ajahn Jun remembered how plans could change in a single moment. He'd say to me, get your bowl and robes, we're going to such and such a place. By the time I got back again with my things, he'd say, change of plan. This happened so often that I got a real feeling for my nay. Afterwards, I came to understand it meant it to mean dividing things up 50-50, maybe, maybe not. I adopted it as my guiding principle in practice. Learning from nature. By founding his monastery in a forest, Lung Pa was upholding a venerable tradition stretching back to the time of the Buddha himself. Almost every one of the monasteries established by the Buddha during the 45 years of his ministry were situated in wooded areas. While the settings for these monasteries varied considerably in wildness, ranging from benign fruit orchards to forbidding jungle thickets and mountainsides, they all shared certain features in common. And this is a quote from the Vinaya Mahawaga. 
being neither too far nor too near a village, suitable for coming and going, accessible for those seeking what is profitable, i.e. Dhamma, not crowded in the day, quiet and still at night, possessing an atmosphere of solitude, undisturbed by people, suitable for seclusion. Since the time of the Buddha, monastics with minds liberated from defilements, able to live in any environment without mental suffering, have almost always chosen trees and silence over buildings and noise. It would seem that forests and lonely places are the natural habitat of the Arahant. One of the most surprising passages in the Pali Canon is the lyrical verse attributed to Venerable Maha Kassapa, the great ascetic and probably the gruffest, most forbidding monk in the suttas. Like towering peaks of dark blue clouds, like splendid edifices are these rocks, where the birds' sweet voices fill the air. These rocky heights delight my heart. With glades refreshed by cooling rain, resounding with the calls of crested birds, the cliffs resorted to by seers, these rocky heights delight my heart. That's from the Tarragata. In the Buddhist understanding, the human relationship to sense experience, mediated by eyes, ears, nose, tongue, body, and mind, may best be conceived as addiction. The forest monastery in this analogy is akin to a rehab center. Just as these institutions are situated from the surroundings in which the patient's addiction flourishes, so too the forest monastery provides distance from worldly influences. Until the mind is strong, unnecessary exposure to triggers of addictive behavior needlessly jeopardize the efforts to free the mind. Lung Pa would often refer to the three kinds of seclusion, viveka, mentioned in the texts. Physical seclusion provides the optimum supporting conditions for mental seclusion, i.e. the state of concentration secluded from the hindrances. This, in turn, creates the basis for the ultimate seclusion from defilement. The Buddha taught that sound is like a thorn that prevents the mind from entering deep states of meditative calm. Forest monasteries provide a respite from the more invasive noises. Although in Thailand today, few are completely unaffected by the sounds of road traffic and village loudspeakers. And yet, Southeast Asian forests are by no means silent places. During the rainy season in particular, they throb with life. The same heat and humidity that humans can find so enervating seems to swell the exuberance of other creatures. The volume, the volume of noises they produce can be considerable. Bird song, the deep <laughs> nighttime bellowing of bullfrogs following heavy rain. The gecko lizards, the chorus of cicadas piercing the dusk. These sounds are as familiar to forest monks as traffic noise is to an urban dweller. Strangely enough, forest noise, even in its most raucous, does not detract from the sense of peace in the monastery. It tends to be the associations evoked by sounds rather than their oral impact, A-U-R-A-L, oral, impact that disturbs the meditator. Lung Pa once joked that whereas a newly ordained monk could hear birds singing at the tops of their voices in a tree outside his kuti and hardly notice it, the faintest sound of a female singer wafting into the forest from a village loudspeaker could turn his mind upside down. 
Lung Po encouraged his disciples to wake up to the simple truths that surrounded them. Nature is full of teachings for all of us. A wise person learns from the things around him in the forest, the earth, the rocks, the trees, the creepers. It's as if all these things were ready and willing to give us advice and teachings. When we consider it well, we'll see that forms, etc., are only our enemies because we still lack wisdom. In fact, they are excellent teachers. Liberation didn't lie in escaping from the world of sense objects, but in transforming the experience of them through wisdom. One year, Lung Pa sent an Australian monk, Ajahn Jagaro, to spend the rains retreat in a branch monastery more than 150 kilometers away from Wat Ba Pong. During the retreat, Lung Pa paid a visit. Lung Pa, how are you getting on, Jagaro? Why are you so thin? I'm suffering, Lung Pa. I don't feel so good. What are you suffering about? Why are you unhappy? It's because I'm living so far from my teacher. What do you mean? You're living with six ajans. Isn't that enough for you? A look of puzzlement. Lung Pa says, Ajahn eyes, Ajahn ears, Ajahn nose, Ajahn tongue, Ajahn body, and Ajahn mind. These are your teachers. Listen to them well, watch them well, and you'll become wise. Often forest creatures would form the subject of homilies delivered to the Sangha, none more so than that of the forest chickens. Look at how spry the forest chickens are, how wary of danger they are. And they're no gluttons. The moment they become conscious of a threat, even while they're eating, they're away. These forest chickens are vigilant. They protect themselves, and they can fly high. When they sleep, they rest on tree branches and treetops, each one to himself. Not like domestic chickens. They eat a lot. They're heavy. They're ponderous. They can't fly high. They don't have their wits about them. Even if one manages to run off, it soon gets mauled by dogs. Domestic chickens get attention from human beings. They're looked after, and it makes them heedless. The forest chickens are different. They're alert and self-reliant. They go about their business without any fuss. They're punctual. Come rise or shine, even if it's bitterly cold. When it's time to crow, they crow. In fact, they're so reliable, we use them as an alarm clock. They're consistent about their work, and they never demand any reward from anyone for doing it. They live at ease in nature. They don't seem to get attached to anything. It's almost as if they have their own kind of Dhamma practice. They don't think a lot. They're not inquisitive or doubtful. They don't look for things to stir up their minds. Okay, I think I'll uh, leave it there and inquire, ask Lung Pa for maybe some pertinent memories, thoughts, reflections uh, of time with Ajahn Chah. Yeah, I'll see what I can come up with. Also, people can ask questions as well. But a couple things. <clears throat> um, just the, uh, uh, the the incident with uh, uh, Jindrakaro, um, just the relying on on the senses and and. Uh, um what what came to mind was a uh, uh a monk who was living with with uh with Ajahn Chah who who'd been he was ordained somewhere else and he'd been practicing 
uh, elsewhere, and then he uh, and he quite enjoyed his uh, his his samadhi practice, and uh, and was getting very um, frustrated by being with with Ajahn Chah. Uh, in fact, there was uh, I remember him telling me uh, this was Ajahn Bankal, uh, him telling me when when he he would be like looking at looking after Lopal or being around Lopal, and uh, and he'd get bored by having to attend to uh, to 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 Ajahn Chah's needs, and especially when there's receiving visitors, and uh, and so then he would just start to tune out, and uh, and try to drop into samadhi rather than having to attend to the details of, of looking after Lopan. And he said it's, it, it was really comical. He said over time he noticed every time that his mind went to go to his meditation object and go to samadhi, uh, when he was around Lopan and there was other people around, uh, Lopal would immediately say, "Ah, Ban Kao, get me this, or Ban Kao, get me that. <laughs> do this, do this." And he was got got very uh, got very very uh, uh, both frustrated and amazed. Uh, but also, <coughs> at one point, um, he was going to leave and and uh, go off to pursue more. Solitary practice, and and uh, and he came to to consult with with uh, with Ajahn Chah, and uh, Ajahn Chah's response was, "Well, you can you can certainly go back and and uh, you 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 know continue your practice there as if you wish." And said, "You know, you but he said, you know, you'll go back and go back to your cave and and." And learn how to be peaceful there, um, but if you stay with me, you'll learn how to be peaceful anywhere. <laughs> and uh, that was uh, uh, that was it. That was he decided he decided to stay. Uh, so that's one memory that that, that comes up. Uh, also, one of the things that that uh, <coughs> say in uh, just Ajahn Chah's emphasis on Mayna. I mean, it's just so common. This sense of not sure, not a sure thing, uncertain, paying attention to uncertainty. That uh, it was in yesterday's reading of the uh, Megiya Sutta, uh, where the Buddha is giving these different meditation. Practices or techniques to, to you know, to asupa to deal with lust, metta to deal with, with anger, mindfulness of breathing to deal with discursive thought, um, but the recollection of impermanence to deal with the I am and uh, and that the the that self position or I am. Position is undermined, and one realizes the truth of, of not self through the through 
through the contemplation of, of uncertainty and where that, 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 that doorway, uh, you know, the Buddha, of course, says the contemplation of impermanence, but uh, uh, Ajahn Chah's approach to that uh, was was through that sense of uncertainty, and I think you know one of the things that that is really important in in terms of contemplating that, because usually what we'll do with with contemplation of impermanence, um, just as a object or a, a, or as a, a a way of conceiving in the mind, it becomes an object. Um, and uh, and then we externalize the that experience of, of of impermanence, but by contemplating it as unsure, uncertain, <coughs> changeful, then we start to pay attention to what it feels like um, for the the in that within that experience and. And and uh, so it's much more of a the subjective experience <laughs> of uh, of reality, and uh, and of course that's that's something that Ajahn Chah uh, emphasizes over and over again. Of this, since the you know the language of Dhamma is the language of feeling, and to uh, Pay attention to, to, yeah. What does it feel like? Because it that takes you back to, I mean, one of the, the, the just the experience, the reality of of uncertainty and change. Uh, then taps into or highlights the just that feeling of just unsatisfactoriness and uh, uh, where uncertainty is really uh, this is just this discomfort dis-ease uh, that we we feel within this human condition and and uh, this is an unsatisfactory condition uh, that uh, we don't really have <clears throat> uh, have the ability to exercise control over we can put um, as many appropriate conditions in as possible, uh, but in the end, uh, there is a, a sense of dis-ease, and it's important to pay attention to that because that's a catalyst for for uh, seeing seeing clearly and for relinquishing, for letting go. So, sense of uncertainty and change, and certainly as as was in that reading. Um, uh, the way that Ajahn Chah ran the monastery, uh, yeah, there was this constant element of of, of uncertainty. You never really knew um, when anything would happen, if it would happen, um, when it would be cancelled, if it would be cancelled, if it would be. And that's just how it worked. And you ad- you le- had to learn how to 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 adapt to whatever circumstance presented itself. Um, I mean, in general, um, basically, you can't you can't replicate that in in the West because it just drives people nuts. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, mm-hmm. let's do something right. Got criticized for that a couple times. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's it's uh, <clears throat> it's just you know, you know sort of the, the Western culture, Western mind is just so so uneasy with uncertainty. <laughs> And uh, so that, that uh, but uh, Wat Bapong, um, you really had to be ready to, to, uh, to adapt and change and, and roll with things uh, as, they, as they happened. And you had to be, there was a, there was a kind of a, a sharpness and alertness that you had to, that you had to uh, consistently be, be applying and, and uh, and and uh, honing the mind with, so that's uh, that's something that that uh, uh, comes up in, as a reflection. Also, I'm going to open it up and see if anybody has any questions. This is on. <clears throat> it's on. Um, my question is about how to skillfully apply this contemplation of uncertainty or my nay mm-hmm. and. Um, does does it apply across the board, or is it something that we have to be careful to not go too far with? For example, could, could we apply it to the Dhamma? Is it could we say, well, this is uncertain, or, or to the Buddha, or to this great teacher who's enlightened or not certain? I mean, could it become a hindrance if we take it too far? Well, if you, it'll become a hindrance if you turn it into doubt. Um, you know, so that 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 because you're what you're trying to use it is 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 a a tool whereby one can actually see the 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 changeful nature of things because the tendency of the mind is to try to create stability and certainty and uh, and you know whether it's in external conditions or whether it's in internal conditions it's like I'm always going to be like this my mind is always going to be have this this particular view or opinion or this this is the way I'm always going to see things or how I'm going to always perceive things and you realize oh no it's it's it is really a, a, a dependent on so many conditions and to be able to you know one can take it as a uh, you know, and one can always use, uh, how do you say, use the dumb as a weapon, um, you know, either and so like, you know, somebody's trying to, you, you're trying to get you to actually commit to doing something like, okay, today we've, you know, we've, we, 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 after the meal come, this is your turn for for helping with dishes. Oh, my na! <laughs> you know, you know, you know so, well, that's what the Ajahn says. <laughs> you know, so you know we can, you know, we can we can try to use it to our advantage, but it's that's that's an unskillful sort of act on our part. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, my yeah. <laughs> So it, it can be it can be misapplied, but in terms of of uh, uh, 
because I think one of the things also is certain recognizing that so much of the, say, the uncertainty or the the the, the unsure nature of things is also to do with our own perception, um, because in terms of say, like, uh, you know, is the Buddha a sure thing? Well, not a sure thing because our own perceptions are, and memories and and ways of interpreting and viewing are so changeful. Uh, and to be investigating that sense of, of uh, you know, well, how does that change take place? How does that uncertainty take place? And, and that gives you uh, uh, an insight into working with the working with the mind, working with conditions. But, but yeah, it's, it, it's a, uh, uh, it has to be used with wisdom. Um, early on you, you said, was it a hardship before happiness? There was a little phrase, mm -hmm. love it. <laughs> it's a, right. I use that as a new sticker to remind myself when I feel not so good. <laughs> Yes, I mean that was uh, that was one of the uh, uh, the aspects. Of, so Gajan Cha was, was um, you know, in terms, you know, uh, you know, in addition to um, keeping things uncertain in the monas, he was never shy at making things, you know, a bit difficult. I mean, it was uh, um, uh, it was was there's a an a, a, a northeastern kind of uh, phrase or homily sort of thing. And sort of the, uh, you know, if, you're, if you want things the easy way, it'll end up difficult. Uh, if things are difficult, um, good, good can come from that. <clears throat> so it's it's a, a turn on the phrase, but it's sort of like that sense of <clears throat> yeah, being willing to uh, yeah, to not be too afraid of 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 uh, a bit of a bit of hardship uh, because it's uh, uh, going against our habits uh, and our conditioning is always going to be difficult and being. Having to give up our desires and preferences and and whatnot is always going to be difficult, and uh, finding ways to to look clearly at that is really important. It's yeah, and and the reality is is you can't get away from it. Yeah, <laughs> so you may as well face it then. <laughs> I had a question about something from the reading where he said there are six ajans, the, each of the sense bases, and other than just um, observing like how we're reacting to the sense objects or if we're attaching that to them, how could we use them as teachers? Like, what are ways to use the sense bases? Well, I, you know, that is our world. You know, in the sense of of you know what we do, exp observe or experience through the senses, and then how we react and respond to them out of our, you know, either out of our likes or our dislikes or our indifference, uh, we build 
our whole world through that. So being able to investigate and recognize more clearly how we are building the world. and that Because that, oftentimes what we feel like is, you know, the world is impinging on me. Uh, or the world is happening to me. And it's sort of, but the reality is, is we are sort of creating the worlds we live in. And we may as well learn about them uh, and skillfully, um, yeah, study uh, how that is, to let them be our teachers. Uh, and when we do that, then we were, we're actually able, you know, in a, see, in a, in a, in a kind of, in a world that is out of control, uh, there is a bit of, that's, that's where our, our place where we can actually affect some sort of stability or control. Well, it's uh, 2.20 now, so. <clears throat> okay. If there are any more questions, this is a rich opportunity, but if not, then we'll call it a close.